everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Clear as Mud, where we talk to game developers from all walks of life about their personal and professional journeys. I'm your host, Graham Waldrop. As always, our show is presented by Mudstack, the only asset management and collaboration tool custom-built for game studios and digital artists. For more information, head over to mudstack.com. On today's show, we welcome Mally Rust, brand manager for DC Universe Online. This is a first for the show in which we're not talking to a game developer or a filmmaker, but someone who works tangentially in the industry. Mally takes us through the process of working hand-in-hand with developers on creating content for the game, the value of being transparent with the community, and how to successfully begin marketing an independent game. This interview was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Um, really know nothing about, about marketing in any respect, so... Uh, Mally's passion for marketing really shines through here, uh, and she has razor sharp wit and intellect. And I think you're really going to enjoy what she has to say. And I think you're going to learn something, particularly if you've uh, don't really have much experience or any experience uh, marketing your projects. So uh, sit back, enjoy, and uh, listen up because you're going to learn something. Without further ado, here's Mally Rust. All right, so Mally, I've, I usually start off these, uh, when, we're, when we're talking, I usually start off with like, well, when did you know you wanted to get into games and stuff like that? You, you come from a completely different background, which I'm really excited about. We haven't talked with anyone who's working in the marketing industry, so I'm going to ask you a completely unrelated question to both marketing and the video game business. Um, what would be the title of your autobiography if you were to write it? Ooh, that's a good question. Oh man, I feel like it, it should have something to do with horror because I'm a big horror nut. Um, so maybe like Halloween haunts, um, the, the thrills and chills of working in the gaming industry, right? <laughs> something ridiculous like that. I also like uh, longer titles like that. Yeah, I feel like a good subtitle is so underrated. Mm-hmm. As I always loved, um, even though the movie was pretentious, but I loved it. Uh, Birdman, the movie that came out, I can't remember when that was, six, seven years ago, Michael Keaton. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's like Birdman or like the unexpected virtue of ignorance or something like that. And I was like, I, I like that you have your short title and you also have your kind of you kind of longer title. Yeah, I feel like anime and some light novels really only have the like super long title and like give them a hook that they can tweet about or use in like a Google search ad so they can cut mm-hmm. that part down. And then then you can have, you know, being a side character is hard in an anime dating sim game right like that's just bad for seo (laughs) there's too many words (laughs) but yeah yeah yeah, you're right if you have like the hook then people will remember at least part of it so now that we got that that out of the way i'm um, i am interested in how you actually got into into marketing specifically yeah so growing up i always wanted to be a writer uh but unfortunately i am painfully pragmatic. And I was like, there's no money in being a novelist. Uh, So I was like, okay, how can I be creative, but also maybe try to leverage spreadsheets because I love them. And at that point, I was like, "Mm, well, I'm good at talking in front of people, I guess. And I like to write. So let's study PR. And then I did one semester of PR in college and I hated it. I absolutely hated writing press releases and doing the associated press style. Why'd you hate that? For me, it was, it just felt very limiting and I'm very much into like puns and wordplay in my writing. And 
PR writing is really straightforward. Like you're telling the story, you want it to be as clear as possible. You don't want to editorialize. And I just want to sit there and talk about how awesome everything is. Uh, So it was a pretty natural shift into advertising, especially because UT Austin, the PR and advertising programs are really integrated. So I didn't have to like completely restart all of my classes. Because uh, I found that I really loved the advertising classes I had where I could dive into that data and tie things together. Um, something that felt a little less ephemeral, or ephemeral and a little more trackable than PR uh, really resonated with me. And I still got to use some of those writing skills and those public speaking skills. Um, but advertising under the larger umbrella of marketing just made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, like press releases, whenever I do read them for anything, it could be about any any sort of product or, or uh, even like a, a creative thing, a, a band or, or something like that. It always just feels it's too stuffy. I, I totally get what you mean about like the limiting things. I never had to actually write like a press release before I do like writing a lot myself uh, creatively. And it's just like, you really don't have room to be creative in there. You have to be just so straight to the point to the, but you're so straight to the point to the point where it feels kind of contrived, I think. Exactly. Yeah, there's a reason why every single game's press release sounds exactly the same. And it's because there's that's the style. Like, that's the thing you got to do. And I'm like, no, I would rather be doing things like writing blogs about, like, farting zombies and stuff yeah. than, uh, <laughs> you know, in the voice of said farting zombie than this very formalized, stuffy press release. Yeah. Yeah, I think it would uh, yeah, really... I have a I have a buddy who's uh, just diehard writer, screenwriter, novelist. He's written like two or three novels. He's he's been struggling trying to get them published, and they're pretty good. I'm like, you know, man, you you also could like get into, uh, you know, copywriting or or the marketing side of things because there's a way right to be creative doing that stuff. Uh, and, you know, I think creativity or, or the effectiveness of marketing like that hinges on creativity. Oh, yeah. Well, and I think really, too, brand marketing is literally just storytelling and finding ways to tell a story about a company, for example, that's difficult. But it is kind of a fun challenge when you can start to establish that personality. And, you know, I get to say things in my marketing since I work on DC Universe Online, like be a hero in the DC universe, which is such a powerful and clear story. And then you can kind of go off into tangents like, hey, like here's somebody's OC that they brought to life. Here's here's how you get to interact with Batman. Here's Wonder Woman literally talking to you, not just anybody, you, an upcoming hero in DC. And that's so much fun to use as a bedrock for all the rest of our marketing campaigns. So for like DC Universe Online, I haven't played it. I remember it came, it's been around for a while though, right? Yeah, we're coming up on yeah. year 12 in January. Right. I was about to say, yeah, it, it seems like it's at least a decade old. So it, for, in that sense, you do play, right, as your own created character. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I um, Typically, we don't share our names as anybody on the development team, so that way we don't get hassled in there. Um, but it, my name does reference my love of puns. And I, since I believe puns are magic, I chose sorcery as my power. So like with something like that, when you're making, uh, when you're trying to continue to generate buzz and excitement within the fan base in a game that's that old, what are some of the things you have to do to do that? You know, because I, I would imagine, you know, marking something that's been around for that long can be a challenge. Oh, yeah. And I would say it's actually our biggest challenge, right? Um, we're, we're not necessarily competing on the strength of the graphics, Um, we're competing on the strength of being the only MMO set in the DC universe. Um, And that's compelling to people. Uh, It's definitely more compelling 
the better the DC films come out, I will say. Um, but you really do have those iconic characters that people love to latch on to, identify with, dream about being. Um, and one of the things that we've really learned is we have to lean into those iconic characters, the things that people recognize, um, because those are the ads and the campaigns that always perform best. Uh, I think a great example of that is our death metal campaign uh, earlier this year featured Wonder Woman with a chainsaw, which is just objectively <laughs> freaking cool, right? Yeah, so leaning right. into that, leaning into here's Wonder Woman as you've never seen her before and uh, tying that in with the comics universe to try to get those comic fans excited. There are a lot of other media hooks that we can use to kind of reach out to DC fans. And we're very lucky that DC supports us as much as they do. Um, so kind of working together with them to take all of their properties and find what's exciting and what they're going to be promoting and try to work together. That's been our biggest advantage in promoting a game that is older. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I imagine that sort of cross-department synergy is so key to something like this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. As much as I hate the word synergy, that is absolutely the best way to describe it. So when you're when you're working on something, when you're working on something for this game, how in touch are you with maybe not the development team themselves, but someone from the development team in terms of formulating sort of a marketing strategy around an upcoming episode? I'm actually incredibly embedded with our development team. Um, I, I hate the stereotype that a lot of game marketers have where developers are like, ugh, here's that jerk from marketing asking me for stuff. Um, I really, really like to be relatively embedded with game teams and involved in those conversations early so that people see me as a person and not marketing the great evil that is a necessity for our game. Um, so I'm in a lot of meetings. Most marketers probably aren't. I'm in the production standups. I'm in uh, some brainstorm meetings for new products or new features. I join every single playtest um, with our developers so that I can understand the content and pitch it. And that way, when I come to people asking for something, I've already given them something, whether that's feedback, whether that's um, just generally pulling data for people. That's something that I'll do every once in a while. Um, I find it makes the relationship better and having that relationship makes the campaign so much better. Yeah, I think that's great because I've worked with plenty of marketing people that are just, it feels like the wrong message gets communicated from, you know, from my standpoint when I'm working on something or designing something and then marketing comes in and has all these ideas, they misrepresent something, something's not accurate. And that's largely because they don't involve themselves as much. Uh, the communication's not as good. Um, this is, you know, past companies I've been a part of. So I think that's really refreshing to hear that, uh, you know, you're actually in there and you understand what's being made and, and you're not trying to sort of come in and just say, no, it needs to be like this because X, Y, Z. It's like, no, you're trying to understand what the, the team is creating. Yeah, exactly. Um, I am a firm believer that the only stupid question is the one that you don't ask. And I even have a habit of being like, hey, this might be kind of a dumb question because I am relatively new to the team, right? And we have people who've been working on this game for 10 years, right? So I am very much like, hey, it is better to ask and get clarification, even if you think you know the answer, than to go out and make claims and then have everybody yell at you afterwards. Not that I've had that happen to me, but I don't ever want it to happen to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you also clearly have a passion for the, the source material um, as well. So, I mean, that's, that's obviously got to help. It's actually funny. I would not call myself a DC fan per se. Like I've never classified myself as being super big into superheroes, but I think that one of my superpowers as a marketer is 
being able to immerse myself in things that maybe I didn't care about before and become a super fan. Um, I, I joke with my, with my fiance, I'm like, Hey dude, I know more about DC than you do. And he always gets <laughs> mad because he knows it's true because I have to do so much research for these episodes, right? Like yeah. I know all these weird side characters. I'll walk out and he'll be watching, you know, a DC movie. I'll be like, oh, I know him. And it's this random side character who's in there for like five seconds. I'm like, no, he's in our episode. I know that guy. <laughs> well, that's cool too that you're able to just, you know, put yourself in in there and be like, you know, maybe I'm not the biggest fan, but I can, you know, I, I, I can get a mastery of of, of the world. I think that's such an important piece that's that's missed um, by people who aren't cr- actually creating the content, but have to market the content or sell it or whatever. But how do you do that, right? If you're not if you're if you're not into it, then you know what gives you that motivation other than like obviously you got to make money. But I think really embedding myself with the developers, you feel their passion, right? I say this with all the love in my heart. I work with a bunch of freaking nerds, and it's <laughs> awesome, right? Like yeah. it is hard not to get excited about Tikal the cat when you have people who have Tikal as their profile picture in Teams, right? And you know everybody has those characters that they love so much and they know the history. And what I'll do sometimes is if I know a certain developer is passionate about a character or a storyline that we're we're featuring, I will literally get on a call with them and be like tell me about them. Because that helps me understand not just, hey, here's character and backstory, but here's the part of the backstory that actually resonates with the people who adore this character, who adore this storyline. And then I use that to kind of inform what we focus on in the marketing materials. Love that. Love that. Cool. Take me through like an example. This is a live service game and you've you've obviously marketed other games that aren't live service. What are the big differences other than, obviously there's content that continues to come out for the live service uh, game. But what, what are some of the other things that are key differentials between uh, you know, a live service game and, a, and a, a game that just gets a single release and it's out and it's done? Yeah, I think the biggest difference is your campaigns for a live service game aren't just one and done. You want to design them in a way that gets people coming back to your game. So you one of the things that uh, we don't do as much as I would like is some evergreen campaigns, right? Like even if we don't have a big content drop uh, for live service games, it is absolutely critical to keep that heartbeat up of communications with potential new players because new players are great, but then also figuring out, okay, what's the story I tell to people who left and who we want to bring back in with a single release game. It's you either make the sale or you don't it's binary. You might be able to change that with some sales. Right. But at the end of the day, it's, it's just a single action. Whereas some of my campaigns are designed towards keeping people in the game. Um, You know, with our holiday seasonals, for example, that's not something I'm going to advertise to new players, but it's a great way to bring people back in who might really, really want a, you know, dope, ugly sweater for their hero, for example. Um, Or it might be getting new players, or it might be increasing the value of players. You know, maybe it's trying to get people to buy new cool things, right, within our game. And those campaigns are a little different. They're probably not going to be ad campaigns, but they might be something like email campaigns, right, where we have people who are invested and who actually care about our content and we know that. And so we want to communicate with them. It's that sustained communication that is the big difference. I mean, that's also something I've thought about too. It's like what, you know, for, for online games I play, what will get me back into it if I haven't played it in a while, you know, and what was interesting to me is like, so just a a personal example of this is, um, Uncharted. I love the Uncharted games. Um, 
and I hadn't played Uncharted 4 online in probably three years or something. And then the Uncharted movie came out, which I didn't want to see at all, but it made me want to be like, I want to go play the real Uncharted games again. So I started playing them again, and then I didn't watch the movie at all, and now I'm playing Uncharted 4, like, not every day, but at least three or four times a week. So it's like, I don't know, it's almost like reverse marketing. It kept me away from the movie, but it got me back into the games and playing them more regularly again. Yeah, and that just speaks to the power of, uh, you know, having working with IPs that aren't just in games, right? That's one of the big benefits for us is even if you hate the DC movies, right? If you're a fan of DC properties, we're always there and we always got we're we're, you know, we're not legally allowed to use the exact storylines and likenesses, so you know we're going to be different from whatever you don't like about the movie. Um, it's funny, we actually, we just released a uh, Black Adam episode to release alongside the movie. It has a different storyline. It's the very classic appearance of Black Adam, but we do have a little reference to The Rock in our game. We actually have a rock off to a side that's dressed like Black Adam, like a little pet rock. Um, <laughs> so we, we try to find ways to integrate without completely mirroring with the movies and kind of the pop culture stuff. I didn't even know who Black Adam was until, you know, the movie started getting marketed and things like that. But I can imagine someone who likes that character either disliked or didn't like the movie can see that and be like, okay, they're having fun with it. They're having a good time. I'm having a good time because of that. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that's one of the, one of the things that I love about our game and our game team is we do have a sense of humor. Like our, our, our team is, they take what they do seriously, but they try to find ways to make it fun. We have a lot of collections in our game, um, and our narrative designer is fantastic at making jokes and references that make you, if you're like a hardcore DC fan, you're like, oh my god, they referenced a tiny thing that nobody could realistically care about. But if you're not, you still feel like you're getting something out of it. Like I have to give so much credit to our team for making my job so much easier because they just produce great work. And so for me, it's easy to be like, yeah, everybody should buy this. Here are the great selling points. Our team's fabulous. End of discussion. When when one of these episodes is getting created, does that come from the development team or does that come from, from, from the marketing side or is there like a give and take there or do you guys bounce ideas off each other? How does, how does like, how is an episode created in the sense of uh, the content, I guess? Oftentimes what we'll do is um, we'll talk to DC first. And just, you know, get to know their calendar for the year and when we might be able to align with major character featuring, right? Um, That's a big guiding factor because, you know, a lot of people didn't know anything about Black Adam, but now they know a heck of a lot about Black Adam. And that has helped us um, in some ways a lot with this latest episode. So then, you know, marketing is typically the go-between between DC and the development team. And it really is a very collaborative process. Um, I would say it is definitely more developer driven because they have a better handle on what assets we have and what we could reuse or what we could update. Um, And, you know, we want to make sure that any episode that we have fits in with our production pipeline. But there is absolutely an openness to aligning to what will help me make bigger marketing beats, which I always appreciate. Sounds like that's more collaborative as opposed to dictatorial as well, coming from DC themselves. Oh, yeah. DC uh, is probably one of my favorite partners that I've ever worked with um, because they're open to trying new things and they're very... They were, it's clear that they respect the work that we do, 
But I think that also comes from the fact that we very clearly respect their characters and we, we ask for feedback on everything that we do because we want to make sure that we're shepherding, you know, these characters and portraying them in the ways that DC wants them to be portrayed, right? It's always that give and take. And sometimes it can be frustrating, right? Like if DC gives us feedback like, um, this metal is actually more of a champagne and in your game you have it as silver, but the little details genuinely do matter. And so it's really nice to be able to have that conversation back and forth. For, you know, other games you've worked on, um, mm-hmm. I know you've worked on some of the, uh, some Star Wars games. Which Star Wars games have you worked on? Oh, gosh. Okay. Let me go through my little, little Rolodex in my brain. So uh, we did uh, Episode One Racer on the Switch and Xbox. And we did, uh, I was part of the KOTOR 1 on Switch launch, um, which was very exciting. I did a little bit of assistance on some of the Jedi Academy uh, release stuff. Um, and then... I did get to create the email and help design the landing page for uh, the Knights of the Old Republic remake announcement that happened. Cool. Yeah, that's a lot of, I mean, that, that's, that's something that's been interesting to me as, as a Star Wars fan, which I had, which is why I have to ask about, okay. oh, yeah. <laughs> I have to ask about Star Wars is, is, you know, them sort of bringing back all these old games for a new audience, which I think is always, always cool. I know some people get upset about that and it's like, why are we remaking stuff? But it's like, you know what? Someone might not have uh, an N64. How are they going to play the episode one game other than exactly. using an emulator? Why not Why not get a, a nice big old remake where you can enjoy it on, on, on a huge TV? I think that what's also really cool is... As much as um, as much as a lot of Star Wars fans are really frustrated by the fact, right, that like, oh, these this such and such isn't canon anymore because the big canon erasure of what whenever Disney right. got everything, there is definitely an openness and an excitement on from the Star Wars team and from the Lucasfilm games to preserve the history, even if it's not technically canon. Yeah, and I've and I've liked how they've tried to take some of the stuff from the extended universe and bring it into this new canon as well as opposed to being like we're just going to ignore that forever like yeah <laughs> you know they they re-released the books and said these are legends they brought in grand admiral thrawn into the rebel show it's like they're they're doing stuff and trying to be respectful of what came before but i also think it's a good idea to probably say let's try to make this one big timeline at the same time because it was messy yeah it's um it's always interesting to me when you see games start to embrace that like okay yeah now we're gonna do books and now we're gonna do comics avatar the last airbender is another example right where it's like how much of it is canon canon oh and now you're releasing a tabletop role-playing game okay interesting so now am i a part of the canon um that's just right that's always fascinating <laughs> yeah. to me yeah i also think that you know in some ways it's kind of you know, just because someone says something's canon doesn't mean like it has to destroy what you thought of initially. Like, exactly. I don't know, people take that stuff so personally oh, as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, your head canon still exists, and it is it is just as valid even if Disney says no. Right? Like, there's a reason why fan fiction is so popular because these worlds are creative and interesting, and they really do enable other people to be creative and interesting within them. Uh, so I'm always a big fan of like, you know what? What you believe, it, it, it is the truth. What, what you believe is, is the truth as much as anything can be, you know? So that's actually something I wanted to talk about in terms of, we've talked about, you know, you working you know, very close to the DC team, uh, DC development team and DC themselves. But what about when you're engaging with the audience 
and you're making blog posts and things like that. And, um, you know, you're actually talking with, uh, you know, the audience that you are marketing to what's, what's that experience like? It's funny because a lot of people are like, oh man, comic book nerds, you don't want to make them angry. And in a sense that that is true. Um, but I also work with a bunch of comic book nerds who help me write things that don't make people angry and that get people excited. Um, and I actually think our fan base is pretty receptive to what we put out because they're there to experience the stories and to feel like they're a part of them. So as long as we are centering ourselves and what we're saying on players and not just on what we think is important, but what players actually care about, it goes a long, long way. Um, we have a really great habit of doing developer letters that help set expectations. So people are hearing it from the game devs, not just from me, right? Marketing person who's mm. trying to sell them something. So it feels more like a conversation in that respect. And my goal with any marketing is to A, tell a story and B, make it feel like a conversation because nobody likes to be just shouted at, right? Like that's that's yeah. not fun. It's not exciting. And most of all, it's not engaging. So trying to find those ways to bring people in is huge. Yeah, well, I also love that idea about bringing in developers to actually be able to post things too. So I think that's one thing that always gets me excited about properties I care about is hearing from the people who are creating them. Exactly. And I... Like I said, my team is sometimes a little too humble for their own good. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to have to brag for you. Um, and I love to do things like include their perspective in behind the scenes looks for things like the Xbox uh, Wire, for example. We just did a look into how we created a throne in the game, which, you know, to some people, they might be like, oh, like you, you designed a chair, but hearing from our concept artist, how he approached it, you know, kind of how he built his career in it. That's something that's inspirational and turns a chair into something exciting that people want to talk about. Like, whoa, this throne went through eight different iterations. This is nifty as heck. So you, know, you have cool things like that, but what about when you're releasing some content that maybe someone isn't interested in and maybe, you know, it's a neg more of a negative reception. What, what do you, how do you deal with that? We have one of the best community managers in the business. Um, and I'm very lucky to be working again with so many awesome and talented people. I know that I'm supposed to be talking about my stuff on here, but really genuinely when you have a great team, it makes your work so much easier. And uh, I think as a whole, we get together and we try to plan ahead for things that might be pain points or that players might not like. We are able to do some public tests that help inform releases and help us get ahead of messaging, which is always super helpful. But I think the biggest thing that our community manager does that I try to mirror in any communications that I do for marketing is there is a sense of empathy with it. Like, hey, you know, we recognize that this is a subpar experience and being if even if we can't be totally 100 percent transparent on like this is exactly what we're doing to fix it, acknowledging and communicating the steps that we're taking and being more in depth than we're looking into it is huge. Like even just saying something like, Hey, our QA team is working to replicate these five bugs. Um, and once we figure out the source, we'll get back to you. You know, being able to speak openly, even when you can't say everything is huge. Um, because people hate feeling like they're in the dark. Yeah. I think that's great that you can do that. And I think that also speaks to, the power of this this game in terms of its longevity, right? Because there are plenty of other online games out there 
and one that comes to mind is this. I don't know if you heard of this game called Anthem um, yep. that Bioware made. Yeah. Like that was, uh, we actually talked to someone who worked on that. It sounded like a, a nightmare from a development standpoint. And then, you know, it was released and um, fell way short of expectations. They kept saying they were going to fix things. They did fix some things. Then they said they were going to sort of, you know, take some time to really reboot the game. Like it was going to stay live, but they were going to do all these things to make sure that, um, you know, the game was you know brought up to the level that people thought it would. It was just going to take, you know, six to eight months, maybe a year. And then they just went radio silent and then the game's dead. And then the development team moves on. And I think a lot of people in that community probably felt like we've been, we've been betrayed. We put all this time into this game. We stuck with it and it never got uh, where we all thought it was going to go. And now it's, now it's gone. And now you probably alienated uh, a lot of your fan base at that point. You never want to leave people feeling burned ever. And I, I think that, it's it's like in real life relationships, right? The more that you communicate and even if it's thoughtful communication, right? You don't have to communicate immediately, but the more that you can communicate and the more that you can listen and not just hear, but actually listen and understand the crux of the complaints is it's going to make the difference when you actually say something back to people. For example, this year was a slower year for us and we were pretty transparent with players. It took a lot of back and forth between us and our communications department to make sure we were saying exactly the right thing. But we were very open with our players because we'd lost uh, a lot of people from our team, right? Like other studios were dangling these huge, huge, huge salaries and none of, nobody can blame anybody for you know making the right move for themselves. But it did mean that content was going to come out slower than our players were used to expecting. And I think one of the reasons why people stuck with us, even though we had that slowdown, right, was because we were open. We were like, hey, we are in the process of hiring for a lot of roles. Um, You know, please apply, right? Um, But we are still working on getting you guys content, but we don't want to release content that's underbaked just to get content into your hands. And making that statement was really, really powerful because a lot of our fans were like, you know what, we totally understand um, and even the people who didn't understand were like, you guys are lazy money grabbers, right? Um, as people on the internet like to say about any company making money. Um, other fans were like, hey, look, they're doing their best and they're communicating a lot more than a lot of studios do. So again, like huge credit to our PR team and to our community manager for crafting that because then it made my job a lot easier when we had the next episode because people were excited for it and they knew it was coming later. So I didn't have to message against no 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 we promise something's actually coming like people trusted us what about like for release dates and things like that if you you know when you're determining a release date for an episode what's that process like because i I have a lot of experience with release dates and then coming up short on those release dates being a little too ambitious uh too many lofty goals there and then it winds up coming out you know later than you expected how do you determine release dates with uh with your team a lot of it uh, comes from our producers. And we, one of the things that I, I don't necessarily love, um, right. I'd love to have just like a month where the episode is finished and I have a month to market it and then we release it. But the realities of game development, especially on a live service game are that's not, that's not necessarily a thing that can happen. So what we do is we have a lot of conversations with our producers on, Hey, what's, what are our estimates? So we use historical estimates, which, you know, we have 12 years of, so we're pretty good at those to project out a launch date. And then about two or about a month out, we revisit the episode, um, 
and we say, okay, what is the actual probable release date? Uh, we're very slow to announce them to the public. Um, we will give like months rather than uh, specific dates, like in October rather than October 13th, right? Um, but in general, we want to avoid telling people things are coming out when they're not. Um, so we'll usually hedge. And while it <laughs> it would be more exciting to be like, hey, guys, play our game on this date. Um, it's definitely very, very helpful to not have to issue retractions all the time. And what about, um, you mentioned that you, li- you like data. So what, what kind of data points are you looking for in, in your work, specifically with, with post-engagement and driving engagement with with your audience what what are some of the sort of a big question more of a broad question but sort of the tools from the the analytics and data side of things that you use and what are you hoping to get from that and how does that help your strategy moving forward yeah i think google analytics is sort of the backbone of our marketing uh data as it is right now i think that it it does a great job of measuring that traffic and actually seeing who converts because it's easy to get a lot of engagement on a social post. It's a lot harder to get somebody to register for and download a game. So a lot of what I do with data is figuring out what traffic sources are the most, have the highest conversion rates um, so that we can prioritize those in terms of content or putting some spend behind it. And then looking for ways that we can improve the user journey throughout our marketing campaigns. Um, for example, small tweaks can make a huge difference. Uh, we added a download button to our website header and we saw downloads increase 30% month over month um, because it was it's so much easier to get somebody to just immediately download a game. And once it's downloaded, there's not that psychological barrier of like, oh, I got to enter all this information to register. They've already got it on their computer. It's already taking up space. They've already spent the bandwidth. So they're more likely to actually sign up and make things happen there. So for me, I like to use data as a measurement of, is our marketing doing what we think it's doing? Or is it causing some other thing to happen that maybe we didn't expect that we can capitalize on? So that's a very, very small window into the data thing. Um, I think I also tend to look into our marketplace data. Um, That's our in-game item shop and use that to inform, you know, discounts, uh, plan sales, plan some bonus weeks within our game um, as a player retention kind of play. (laughs) Um, And, so we, we do use some of that in-game data as well. It's not as connected to our marketing because um, we're real careful with you know GDPR and all that stuff. We want to make sure that we're respecting people's privacy and we're not just, okay, cool, here's all of our data on you, the person, and I'm going to create this super targeted ad and I'm going to be an evil marketing villain. That's not what we want to be doing at all, at all. So um, we use that more to inform general strategy rather than the in-game data for general strategy rather than really using it to drive our marketing per se. Um, We depend on a lot of the marketing actions and the data that that produces um, to inform marketing decisions. Well, that's cool. You're actually looking at what's going on in the game to inform what you're going to do in terms of those decisions. And I mean, there is the data point of, you know, how many people convert to members or how many people convert to paying and what's the lifetime value of people, right? That does inform our investment decisions for marketing because you don't want to spend more on somebody than they're actually going to pay. So that also helps kind of inform what do we need to optimize, what doesn't work, what works but is too expensive and how can we kind of mitigate the expenses. Do you do any social media stuff as well? 
I do some. Um, It's not necessarily my bread and butter. Our community manager really drives the social media strategy for us. Um, But I do help manage some of the paid spends on social. And I'll end up writing the copy for those, for example, in a way to hopefully make it feel less like just pure ads. Well, yeah, speaking of just pure ads, what are some of the marketing strategies that really annoy you when you see when you're being marketed to? The, the thing that drives me absolutely batty is, and this is especially in e-commerce or things where you buy things repeatedly, when they show me an item I have already bought, like it's clear that they have the retargeting ads set up, but they haven't done the work to actually, when I buy that pair of boots, to make those stop showing up in my ads, for example. I'm like, I'm literally wearing those boots right now. Get smarter. Like, if you're going to do retargeting, go all the way. And then I think in games, it sounds very counterintuitive, but leaning too heavily into gamer slang, gamer terms, gamer lingo, because for me, that's probably not what's going to get me. And it's especially true, I think, for first-person shooter games, for example, right? You get too into the genre in your ads and you alienate a lot of people who might be open to it. It's like it's a stereotype or something, right? Exactly, exactly. Like seeing those stereotypes, the fact that, and I think the worst, the biggest pet peeve of mine in all of gaming marketing is those fake mobile ads. They drive me bonkers. They show like a fish in psychological distress with fake puzzles that aren't even in the game. And it's effective. I've read articles about how it really works. And some of them are actually adopting several like mechanics as smaller parts of their game. But oh, it drives me crazy. And every single time I'm like, I don't want to feel anxious for this fish. Like I get that psychologically it works on people, but oh, it drives me bonkers. Yeah, I remember those now that you're talking about it. And, and it was it made me watch the whole damn thing, though. Yep. And this message popped up that said, will you save this fish? And I said, no, but I hope somebody does. It did something to me psychologically. And I think it had something to do with the, the way the fish was animated and the imminent danger it was in. But it was never something I was going to play. I was never into those kinds of games. Whenever those ads did come up, I, I looked at them a heck of a lot longer than I looked at other ads. Exactly. And those, especially for mobile user acquisition, right, it is so data driven and they have gotten it down to such a science. And I wish they would bring back some of the art into it. There's one that I saw that I really liked, which was just a bunch of memes about how their microtransactions weren't predatory like other people's. And I actually did download the game just to see if it was true. Um, And I mean, it was relatively true, right? But that stuck out in the sea of all of the games lying about what their game actually is. Um, So I really liked that approach. How do you feel about those microtransactions sort of thing, the thing that kind of swept up the industry there for a while? I think they're a blessing and a curse, right? Because they've enabled some smaller developers to have those big games that end up becoming hits and have spun off into an industry all their own. Like mobile gaming almost feels like it's a completely separate industry from just you know, like the gaming industry in general, because the norms are so different. But it's a double-edged sword, right? Because a lot of times it's introduced mechanics that make games not fun anymore or frustrating. And I think a great example of a company that's done monetization right uh, is Dead by Daylight. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a horror fanatic and I love the game Dead by Daylight, but 
they have a good model of you can earn some stuff by playing in game. You can buy the DLCs or you can monetize on their cosmetics. And their cosmetics are definitely on the pricier side compared to a lot of other games. But they're also high quality and they are also completely unnecessary for playing the game, right? So I, I think that that's a really smart way of doing microtransactions that doesn't feel super scummy. Some people will disagree with me and be like, charging 20 bucks for any cosmetic is scummy. And I'm like, you don't need to be, you know, you don't need to be Fang Min dressed as Jill Valentine, right? Like that's, that's a you problem if you just want to be fancy. Yeah, and I, I agree with you on that. Because the thing that really bugged me about going back to Star Wars, uh, the Star Wars Battlefront 2, when they were doing all the loot stuff, and it like drastically affected the way the game could be played. Yeah. Before they reverted the way they did the microtransactions, Darth Vader was going to be locked at launch. You were going to have to pay like 50 bucks or something to just have the ability to play as Darth Vader after having dropped 60 bucks on the game. I mean, it's just unfreaking believable. A, a total misfire. Oh, yeah. Well, and of course, then, you know, it's all in communication, right? Because they had the most downvoted comment in Reddit history for a long time based on that. And it just goes to show you, like, community sentiment can actually have an impact because they did change some of that uh, for Battlefront 2. They did walk a little bit of it back. They did. And it got me playing it again. I played it for quite quite a while um, because they, like, they, they walked some of that stuff back. There was still that kind of element to it. And I'll never understand from a design perspective being like, all right, you earned all this, all these credits or whatever, and like now go spend it on a box, and maybe you'll get something. I don't understand why people think that's fun or why people think that's interesting as as a player. It, it, it's really alienating. And it's interesting because it really isn't designed to be fun. It's designed to scratch the psychological itch of addiction and like gambling and all of that. Right. Just play one more time. Keep going. Just one more game. One more game. Exactly. And so. If they could make it more fun, I'd be a sucker for it. Right. Because I'm a huge, I love, I love gambling. I'm just be honest. Oh, like yeah. I, I love going to uh, New Orleans. I love hitting the blackjack table and, you know, for a few hours and, uh, you know, sports bet, you know, I love doing all that stuff. And so like, if you can make it fun, mm -hmm. they could really reel me in, but they, they relying on just the grind of it all. It's the time investment, right? Cause you're already investing time as a player to earn all those credits. And then most of the time, the UI for loot boxes is it's difficult to get it right. And if you have a bunch of loot boxes that you're opening, then all of a sudden you're adding on all of this admin time to your game that takes the psychological like ping of the box exploding in bright colors. And you're just like, okay, cool. Now I have to do that 500 more times to maybe get the one thing that I want. You know, that was driving me crazy going back to Uncharted again, Uncharted 4. There's a character I've always really liked since Uncharted 2, uh, Chloe Frazier, and she was locked behind a loot box in Uncharted 4 and um, never unlocked her. And then when I came back to start playing earlier this year, I was like, all right, I'm just going to play a bunch and I'm going to unlock the character. And so I played and I played and I played. And finally, after like three months of playing the game again, finally unlocked her like a few weeks ago. And it was like, this is just insane that I had to play the game a bunch, earn a bunch of in-game currency to throw at a random loot box to see if I could get a character that was available out of the box in Uncharted 2 and 3 online. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting, I think I think that a game that scratches the gambling itch really, really well is the Borderlands franchise, right? Like, you still feel that sense of accomplishment when you beat a boss, but and so you have that 
plus the chance of getting the loot. And so maybe even if you don't get the loot that you want, you still have that psychological, like good feeling of, hey, I kicked that boss's butt and you're okay with grinding it again because you're still getting something out of it. Um, I really admire a lot of the design decisions. Yeah, I agree. It's it's in the game and you're ex- because of all the different combinations you can make with those weapons. It's in the game and you feel like, okay, I am actually scrounging for this stuff. I'm working for it and I'm getting a positive feedback loop in game. And maybe it's still randomized, but the combinations that you can make with those weapons is just always really exciting. So yeah, I totally agree with you on that. And you can always move forward in the game. I think loot boxes often feel like a stopper and that's when they stop being fun. Like you can, even if you don't have the unkempt herald in Borderlands 2, you can still move forward and create builds that are interesting and powerful and exciting. Um, whereas a lot of the times with loot boxes, like I just need to grind to get this, the like the eighth layer of currency. Sometimes I feel like currencies and systems with currencies in games are like Dante's seven circles of hell, <laughs> where it's just like, oh, I have to get this currency to get this currency to get this currency to maybe get this item. That just feels so bad. Yeah, no, totally agree. Um, all right, yeah, I could talk about my my hatred for the loot box stuff all day, but t- take me through because everything sounds great at at, um, at DC. Is there any at, at another company? Was there any any point in time where you did uh, a marketing campaign or strategy that didn't work? Something that that didn't do as well as you wanted it to, but it taught you maybe a valuable lesson that you use now going forward. I'm trying to think. I've been very fortunate to work on games that haven't had anything too too chaotic or or frustrating. And a lot of the games I've worked on have been, you know, like I worked on Wizard 101 and that has 10 years of, of experience and they kind of already knew what worked and what didn't. I think that probably, even though it was my favorite campaign, um, we did Stubbs the Zombie at Aspire. And I loved all the stuff that I kind of got to own for that. Um, But we learned a lot of very valuable lessons in terms of working with third-party partners and producing physical goods to go along with a game release. Um, Our collector's edition didn't launch when it was intended to. Um, The shipping times took forever. We had some items in there that we, you know, we are art team designed these amazing rip uh, parody posters of classic zombie movies with Stubbs the zombie in it. We couldn't use them. Um, and so I think the thing that we learned from that especially is communicate early and often, especially if you're a licensed game, um, because as much as we all loved our Walking Dead Stubbs the zombie poster, it just wasn't going to happen legally. Like, um, And if we had talked to our to Disney, who owns the license, actually, earlier, we might have, you know, saved some extra work. And then I think the the other thing is to define parameters with partners early on. We actually didn't have Google Analytics um, event tracking set up on the Stubbs the Zombie website when we launched it. And so I couldn't track some of my marketing uh, beats that I'd done. Like, for example, we sent out an email to anybody who signed up on the website advertising the collector's edition. And I had part of the data funnel that just wasn't there because we hadn't asked the third-party partner to set that up. And it's easy in hindsight to go, oh, no, like we've got to – oh, we need that data and to not have it until the next campaign rolls around. So something I've learned is make sure your analytics funnel and your marketing tech stack is set up early and always know what you want to measure early so that you can set that up. Because a campaign that you just spend money on – 
and you don't actually have a goal, you'll never know whether it's successful or not. So defining that in advance is huge. What I'm also curious about is, you know, you've, you've worked on a number of big IP-based properties. You know, could you apply, I think you can apply some of that same sort of thought and strategy towards an indie title that doesn't have a built-in fan base, that doesn't have, uh, you know, a big IP or an IP at all, like it's being, you know, created now. Do you, do you think, like in addition to what you just said, in terms of if you're working on a game that is indie, that is uh, under the radar, what, do you, what are some effective marketing strategies you can use for, for that game? Once it gets a little closer to, you know, people can actually look at it and you're like, okay, this is starting to look like a game. Yeah, I think a great example of that, I did actually get to work on a couple of indie games, um, including Light Matter and Morecred when I was at Aspire. And I think the big thing is partnerships are still really important for indie games, even if you don't have a licensed IP. Uh, for example, Game Pass is a huge boon to a lot of studios. Those, um, I mean, I know they're probably changing some of their models in terms of buyouts and paying for games to be in Game Pass, but ultimately Xbox's marketing arm is huge and they love helping indies. The more conversations that you have with platform holders, whether that's Steam, whether that's Xbox, whether that's PlayStation, Switch is a little more difficult. They just kind of do whatever they want and <laughs> you just got to be lucky. Um, but they're looking to highlight indie games that are exciting. And so building those partnerships and leveraging their marketing arms is huge. Like that makes a big difference for indie games. And I think it's just also understanding your partners, right? Like when you go on Steam, look at the top pages. What can you borrow from them? Do you have gifts as headers? Um, I know one of my projects at DC Universe Online right now is making our Steam page stand out because it was created when Steam was just popping off. And those standards for what a Steam page should look like aren't the same now anymore. Like people want more GIFs. They want to see different kinds of gameplay. They want more evocative descriptions. Um, and so knowing what people are looking for on those platforms is huge. Um, How to Market a Game, fantastic blog. Highly recommend it to everybody, but especially indie designers because Chris Zakowski goes so in-depth on how to make a Steam page that's exciting to players. Um, it's a great, great resource. So if someone, you know, let's say it's a hypothetical world, someone comes to you with a with a with a game and they want help with marketing it, that's an indie uh indie title. What are you looking for in their pitch to be like, okay, I, I'd be willing to to work on this with you? The biggest thing is that they have done market research. Um a lot of indies are under the assumption that marketing starts after the game's halfway through. Marketing needs to be baked into what you are building. Uh, I'm sorry to say that your 2D side scroller is in a highly, highly, highly competitive sphere. And unless you have something that makes it more interesting or different, no amount of marketing that I do is going to help your game because there are 400,000 games like it and somebody's probably already done it better. Um, which sounds really, really mean when I say it like that, but it's true. But there are a lot of underserved genres that I think have a lot of potential. Um, they just need the word to get out. Um, like roguelike card builder games, or deck builder games, for example. That's super duper popular on Steam, um, but it doesn't necessarily have the influx and glut of games that other categories have seen. So that's a blue ocean space that I would be excited to market in. Um, so I think a lot of it really depends on... Um, people doing their research before they even look at marketing and making sure that they have a game that there's room for in the market. 
And then additionally, really interesting graphics or art styles. I don't want to say cutting edge because I think the more photorealistic we get, the worse games tend to look. But like a cool art style is so much fun to market. A strong brand voice or personality that you can latch onto is also huge. Um, I loved working on Light Matter, for example, because the character is narrated by Virgil, um, who is a megalomaniac, you know, um, startup founder, you know, maybe has some parallels to other people who, who are actively killing Twitter. I don't know. Um, but his voice was so fun to write in and it it made it easier to tell the story of that world and to write an invitation letter to this once in a lifetime experience, right? Like those are the hooks that a marketer can go, yes, and, and build on all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Something that, especially for you that you can relate to in the sense that, you know, that will appeal to people. And I think that's a good point too about 2D side scrollers, right? If you're going to do that, really know what you're making and find comparable games right, that maybe are similar to yours and measure uh, what is the success rate of, of, of that game in terms of sales and what they do and their, their marketing strategies and things like that. I think that's something, you know, from an indie game standpoint, indie film standpoint, where it's like if you don't have an awareness of the marketplace, if you just make your, your game, your film, and you're not taking into consideration what else is going on out there, you're, you're, you're so behind the eight ball, unless you have something that's truly, truly great beyond measure. Exactly. And most people don't have the resources to build that. Like, I mean, even AAA games, right? Like there are plenty of AAA games that have all the resources in the world, but it just doesn't hit for whatever reason. Um, so I'm also a big proponent of start small, learn, make your mistakes early on things that matter, maybe less to you, and then work on your dream game. Cause I see a lot of people get burned when they, don't necessarily when when they're building their dream game as their first project and they have too big of a scope and then the costs get out of hand and then you can't really build the thing you love like smaller failures are infinitely more valuable than one huge success without the failures i don't think you can you can find that true success that you're really looking for exactly and i've been very lucky to work at companies that have have already kind of like been through the process of what works and what doesn't work. So I've been able to learn and build on what they have. Now, granted, I, I think probably at some point in my career, I'm going to start being in a position to make some failures. And as weird as it sounds, I'm looking forward to it because that's that really is like the best way to learn. Now, my goal is to never like strive for failures, obviously, right? But if you don't, if you don't ever take inherent with taking risks is being okay with failure and risks are when you get the coolest stuff. It really is. Yeah, I totally agree. So speaking of, speaking of that, what does the future hold, hold for you? Do you ever think you'll get back into, into writing or, um, or other forms of marketing or, or do you feel really good about where you're at right now and just sort of enjoying, enjoying the ride? I think I'm definitely looking to kind of add more product management to my marketing career and kind of, Marry that, um, sitting in on all the developer meetings and feeding into systems and giving feedback on that has been really, really fun for me. Um, so finding ways to take my love of spreadsheets and of marketing and kind of meld that into something that starts earlier in the gaming process, in the game development process is really exciting to me. Um, I've also, I'm like, I'm dabbling in screenwriting, not with the intent of writing the next feature film, but it's way easier to write 90 pages of mostly dialogue than it is to write a whole novel. Um, I love, like I said, I love horror. I'm a horror fanatic and I love to run horror tabletop games. So taking some of those stories and just finding other ways to tell them is really compelling to me. But 
probably not as a career thing, just as a hobby. So we'll see. Maybe I'll publish something, but who knows? <laughs> it sounds like you could be a pretty darn good producer. Yeah, that's what I hear. <laughs> yeah, that's I think, you know, with with the spreadsheet stuff, with with getting to know how developers work and things like that. And you understand the marketplace really well. Yeah. Which yeah. is something that some producers don't understand. They're just so intimately involved in the actual production of the game. They're not thinking as much about the market. Yeah, exactly. What 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 are we scoping for and what's actually going to make the most impact rather than what is the thing that is going to take the least amount of resources? <laughs> Well, cool. Well, Mally, thanks so much for joining us. It was really cool to get a inside look into a part of the industry that uh, I'm certainly not as familiar with, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners might not be as familiar with either. You're uh, the first marketing person to come on this come on this show. Well, I'm glad I got the chance to geek out about this. I am such a chatterbox about all things marketing. I could talk for hours and hours. So just getting one to talk about it is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You know, your passion came through big time. So yeah, thanks again. All right, that's going to wrap up this week's episode. We want to thank Mally again for being our guest. To find out more about Mudstack, head over to mudstack.com where you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and join our community on Discord. And of course, we want to thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Clear as Mud.